Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Every guest who has ever appeared in this show has made and will continue to make a substantial impact on our world. I know that's a big statement, but I sincerely believe it. Today's guest, however, is just a bit different. You see, he's certainly impacting our world too, very much so. But he's also ingrained in our history. He is an historic icon, though his own story still has many more chapters to be written. Our guest was born in 1957, the oldest son of two African-American civil rights activists. Sadly, at the age of only 10, he and his three siblings lost their father when he was murdered in cold blood. His father was only 39 years old when he was killed, and he had known at the time that others wanted him dead. Only the day before his death, our guest's father specifically addressed the growing threats against his life, saying, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Our guest was forced to endure the loss of his father and was raised by his mother in Atlanta. He eventually attended Morehouse College, where his father also went. And from there, he went on to make his own contributions to the legacy that his parents sought. His resume is far too long to repeat in full. But he never feared standing up for justice, equity, fairness, and civil rights. He led countless movements, rallies, and protests, including when he was arrested in the South African embassy in Washington, D.C. as part of a civil disobedience protest against apartheid and for the release of Nelson Mandela. But his passions are as broad as they are deep. He has led protests against bias in the field of technology and has spoken to the United Nations on behalf of individuals living with AIDS. He became the first of his family to attain political office, getting elected to the Fulton County Commission. He became the fourth president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he founded the nonprofit Realizing the Dream, Inc., where he spearheaded nonviolence education workshops and programs in Bosnia-Herzegovina, India, Israel and Palestine, Kenya, Sri Lanka, and the United States. He earned the honor of speaking for Barack Obama at the 2008 Democratic National Convention and also spoke at Michael Jackson's funeral in 2009. Our guest served as president and chief executive officer of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center in Atlanta, 
and he co-founded Bounce TV, the first ever independently owned and operated TV network featuring African-Americans. He's also served on the board of advisors of Let America Vote, an organization that fights against voter suppression. He's received numerous honorary degrees and awards, including the prestigious Ramakrishna Bajaj Memorial Global Award for the outstanding contributions he's made to the promotion of human rights and the Humanitarian Award by the Montreal Black Film Festival. He was even given the honor of presenting the ceremonial coin at Super Bowl 40 and throwing out the first pitch at the Major League Baseball Civil Rights game. His father famously said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Today, we have the privilege and opportunity to hear from one of those children about his father's dream and much more. He is the son of Coretta Scott King and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Please welcome the extraordinary Martin Luther King III. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. I certainly am honored and humbled to have the opportunity to share today. The, the honor and humility, I assure you, sir, is all on my side. Welcome. It's so great to have you. So I have many things I want to ask you. We have limited time and I want to jump right in. And I'm going to actually start with the question that is most obvious. It's a broad question and you have undoubtedly heard it many times. So here's the question. What is it like to be the son of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King? Well, I would start off by saying uh, it, it is a tremendous uh, and phenomenal honor uh, to have been born in a family that has focused on, on service and hopefully talking about lifting up the quality of life for all people. Uh, I obviously had a, a front row seat of many things that have occurred in the modern civil rights movement since my father was one of the preeminent leaders of, of the modern civil rights movement using the technique of nonviolence to bring about social change within our, our nation and world in, in a real sense. And of course, my mother, I, I, interestingly enough, my father would say they met in college at Boston, in Boston. Dad was at Boston University working on his PhD, and mother was at the Boston Conservatory of Music working on her master's degree. And they met there and found out that they had a lot of the same. I think their first date was like three or four hours of just dialoguing. And the fact of the matter is mom had already been involved in peace demonstrations. So dad would even say that maybe mother, even though he was exposed by the readings and some of his own writings and his study, he had not really engaged directly, but she had. And they had read a lot of the same books. I, I guess I'm saying all that to say they were, interestingly, a couple that seemed to be made for each other. And they, dad, dad was influenced significantly by a lot of things that mom did. But having that front row seat, to actually see, and during the time that he was working on preparing for the I Have a Dream speech in 1963, the, the, seeing the sad times when he actually was jailed in Birmingham in 1963, and, and actually other times. And I can't say I understood at, you know, that tender, the tender age that I was at each of the times that these things happened. But I did get to experience them in the way mother would frame what happened, like framing the dad was going to jail. He ended up going to jail almost 40 times. He was arrested. Yeah. Well, he was not arrested for a traditional crime. He was arrested because he was protesting laws that he felt were unjust laws. And, and, and mother would say that he was going to jail to make things better for all of God's children. So the framing of it made it fil filtered in a different way, because normally if someone would go to jail, obviously it's hurtful, it's painful, you feel embarrassed. But I never felt, I felt the pain and hurt, but I didn't feel embarrassed because I felt what dad was doing 
was working to make things better for all of God's children. And I should say dad and mom because they did a lot of it together. Yeah, I hear you continuing to come back to your mother. And one thing that I, I read about you is that you have often said that, that while your, your, your dad certainly did deserve all of the, you know, the credit that he gets for moving us all forward, your, your mom you know, certainly also deserves much of that credit. Absolutely. I, I have to think of the fact that had it not been for mother, we would not have a King holiday. There would not be a Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change and a, and a number of other things. M- Mom was involved in a lot of labor organizing. The, the Union 1199, she was one of the first ones to be involved in its actual creation to, to represent, you know, nurses and people in, in the healthcare industry. She was the first day speaker at St. Paul's Cathedral in London in 1969. I was able, my, my older sister and I, who's Unfortunately, is deceased today, Yolanda. Yes. Traveled with her mother to, to London back in 1969 in that experience and many, many other things. But again, we have a national holiday because she was able to bring a coalition of many people together along with Stevie Wonder and certainly all of those in the United States Congress and those in the, in the, I should say in the House and the Senate that passed the bill and, and Ronald Reagan in 1983 signed that King Holiday bill after initially saying he would not sign a bill. But ultimately, he came around to where the people, many people were in our nation and said he'd be honored to sign and did sign in 1983. Yeah. Yeah. Martin, unlike your siblings' names, your name is about as prominent as names get. I I read that your mother actually was concerned about naming you after your famous father. In fact, I read in your book, uh, which is called My Daddy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that you were actually called Marty as a kid so that you wouldn't get confused with your father. And I know that you're, of course, proud of your name, but does it make it hard, though, for you to sometimes be your own person to be called Martin Luther King? Well, what I'll say is I'm sure throughout my life I had challenges, but I'm grateful that my mother did all that she could to prepare. You're, you're absolutely correct. She was very concerned. I was born, as you say, in 1957. In 1955, the Montgomery bus uh, boycott had taken place. And for 300 and 385 days, there was a protest going on. So she saw dad's leadership become from a local minister in Montgomery to a national minister in the United States of America in that year of the protest. And as a result, in 57, when I was born, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, if we name, you know, Martin, if we name him after you, it's going to be very difficult for him. Obviously, they came to the conclusion that I would be named who I was. And as you stated, when I was a kid, and even all the way up to when I was in college, I was referred to as Marty, which was, in my mind, to create some distance. Even when I went to college, I remember that the president of Morehouse College said, and in your class is our greatest alumnus, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his son, Martin Luther King III, is there. And I was hoping he did not ask me to stand up, and he didn't. Because uh, I always was kind of a shy, shy personality. Is is my mom created an energy because what she told me was, Martin, you be your best self, whatever that is. You don't have to go to Morehouse College. I did do that. You don't have to become a civil rights leader. I have been involved a civil and human rights leader. You don't have to. You know, you you, you don't have to be a minister. I have not engaged in ministry in the traditional sense because I have not felt called to be a traditional minister. Uh, But I did everything else. But what she said was, be your best self. And whatever that is, whatever you want to do, we will support you. Well, that's all I need. That's kind of liberation and freedom because it gave me that opportunity to be the best Martin that I could be. And if I woke up every day attempting to fill the shoes of Martin Luther King Jr., I would fail miserably. But I'm grateful that I have the liberation. I've had the liberation to be me. And this is all I've known. Look, 65, you know, this year I'll be 65. So I, I think one of the things we all know is that every day 
we can work to improve ourselves. And that's what I try to do, you know, every, every day and every year, certainly, to improve and, and, and really make a greater contribution. Because there are so many things that dad and mom envisioned. My father wanted to eradicate what he called were the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism, and, uh, and which also includes violence. And, and yet today, we still have these ills within our society that are, are tremendous. And the fact of the matter is, what we know is when humankind comes together and works together, there's probably almost nothing that we cannot achieve. We just have not yet learned how to come together. Yeah, well, let's 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 pursue that a little bit more, and maybe give you an opportunity to speak about about current events. I'm going to offer you a quote that you said. You said that my father's views were unequivocal, and I have found them to be invaluable to me as guidelines for prayerful consideration of current events and issues. So, I'd like to give you that opportunity. What do you say about current events and issues? That's a broad question. But where are you right now in terms of what's going on in the world? Well, number one, I have an organization that I work with. I'm the chairman of the board of the organization, which is called the Drum Major Institute. My wife, Andrea, is the president of the organization. And our mission, part of our mission is to eradicate those triple evils. Now, what it takes is a vast, vast coalition, global coalition of humankind to begin to address these issues. And we believe the values of peace, justice, and equity are, are the values that must be embraced to actually begin to, to, to break down, you know, some of, some of these evils. I would, I would first have to say, however, that in our nation at this particular time, we have gone in a direction where civility is minimized. I don't, I don't like to say laws. It may feel like that it's lost. And I would also add that that is why it's interesting and prophetic that the last book that dad wrote was a book entitled in 1967, uh, he wrote the book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. We are seeing tremendous chaos over a number of years now, maybe the last 10 or 15. Maybe we've always seen chaos. But the goal is to build community, and community starts with 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 the concept of love. We we really have to you have to love humanity for us to get to that point. And unfortunately, we have not yet figured out how do we truly embrace love. How do we embrace those who we disagree with without in in a civil way? Dad used to teach. Really taught us how to how to get along, how to disagree. I should say without being disagreeable. I mean, today, everything gets elevated into a fight. If you don't agree with me or I don't agree with you, we can't get along. And that, right. that's, that, that's, that's not a good thing. That's, that's a direction that the divisive direction will always lead us down a hold that we won't be able to resolve issues. But even, for example, even those who we, we, some may say, well, those are my enemies. I choose often to use the word adversary because it, it has a different connotation. Yes, we may, we are, we are adversaries. We may have different points of view, but we can get along. If I, if I say an enemy, I may not ever be able to build a relationship with an enemy. And I think there's almost in every, all human beings, there's probably some issue that we can get on the same page and agree on. We may disagree on 25 issues, but if there's one, that's where you begin that process of dialoguing. It's a, it seems like a long process because it's one by one by one, as opposed to every now and then we do things and we make huge strides. Right now, for example, since January 6th of 2021, 19 states have put new laws on the books to to really make it much more difficult to vote. And I feel that that's very unfortunate, being that we live in a democracy, and we should be creating conditions so that everyone can vote and vote very easily. I mean, on our smartphones, we pay bills. We, we you know, do all kinds of things. Because of the internet, you can access any kind of information. You, you can do a research paper. Almost when I was in college, I had to go to the library. We all did. And 
and, and mm-hmm. identify many books. We still do that process, but you also can access that same information on a device held in your hand. So if you can do that with that device, why then do you have to, why do we create a process to make it so difficult for people to vote? So I've been involved in a campaign for the last year and a half to, number one, protect and preserve democracy and expand democracy, and also to make it easier for people to vote as opposed to making it harder, because I believe that we have a civic responsibility to engage by casting our, our, our votes. I think I, I hear your, your parents' words and thoughts as you talk uh, so passionately and eloquently, and yet you, you, you do acknowledge the need for debate and for discussion, which I greatly appreciate. Specifically in, in, in on, the, on the topic of racism, do you think that the, our country's long struggle with racism has hit any kind of inflection point in, in recent years? Do you think that the debate has changed? Do you think it's more front and center? I think that right now it is more front and center than it's ever been because for many years, we as a society, and we still are navigating through that, did not want to address race. Today, what we're doing is I, I think that there's a, a move up front that is being defined as, as critical race theory that's allegedly, and I'm, I'm going to say specifically why it is involved with our primary and secondary school system. But yet, if you really do factual research, you'll find that critical race theory was, was, has historically been taught only at the collegiate level, in law school particularly. And somehow we have created a narrative that is being taught in our primary and secondary schools. And so we're going across the nation, you know, creating laws that, that, that basically say we don't want to learn that history in that particular way. And I'll give you an example. In the state of Texas and in other states, but specifically Texas, the, the, the legislature used the provision of the I Have a Dream speech where my dad talked about his four little children not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That was used to justify writing and saying we don't need to be exposed to critical race theory. We don't want our children to be exposed. Therefore, now you can't even study I Have a Dream or you can't study about Rosa Parks and other things, a whole lot of things that are defined as critical race theory. And it seems to me that that is really almost anti-education It's because you shouldn't be programming anyone, although we are all programmed, uh, ironically. But my point is we should all be exposed to all history. The history, whether it's painful, the history that is is true. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I would love for us to be able to say that we live in a colorblind society. That's the goal that we are working toward, but we just are not there yet. And so for us to act like it doesn't exist, racism, when we see it by statistical data, when you look at, you know, even a disparity between income and inequality. Prior to the pandemic, the average Black family in probably 2020, let's say 2015, the average Black family may have had $30,000, $35,000 saved up. The average white family may have had $150,000. So why is there still this huge, I mean, it, it all everything is off now because of after the pandemic, a lot of people tragically have lost so much. And so I don't know what the numbers state today. I'm just saying that you know, 40 plus years after my dad passed, there still was this huge gap just in terms of income and inequality. And the gap obviously is even larger today because of the pandemic. And so it, 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 some of that has to do with the issue of race. And does that mean we're a terrible society? No, it just means we're a society that has a lot of work to do to create the scenario where all people can be looked at as as equal. And it doesn't mean that individuals haven't made progress. There's some, you know, a number of, of people in various professions have made amazing strides. But we still, if we, if we look at where the masses are, there's a, a big, big problem as it relates to the masses of people. What do you think your father would say about the, the, the state of, of the world today? Would he say something similar to what you just said? 
You know, I can only make an assumption and I'll base it on his writing. I think my dad would, he, he was an eternal optimist, but he would be very concerned, I believe, about the division that exists in our society. The fact that we are at each other's neck in some areas, he would be concerned. I'm sure about the fact that we're using critical race theory as a, as a weapon. It's weaponized and, and it makes people sort of turn off. And I'm not sure that people, people have a perception that may not necessarily be the reality. So he'd be very concerned about that. But then on the other, he'd be, he'd be very concerned about what's going on in the Ukraine right now and, and with Russia. The fact that we could get to World War III, which it would be beyond a disservice for our whole planet. And I think he'd be concerned about other wars that are going on that don't get any any airplay because there are a number of wars. It's not just Ukraine. It's just that Ukraine is so important because it could, it hypothetically could go into a World War III. But yet there are wars in a number of nations that we're not focused on. And he wanted to see war eradicated. He wanted to see humankind work together. People have the capacity and propensity to do so much if they turn to each other as opposed to turning on each other. And right now it feels like we're turning on each other. But I think he'd be very proud of the many young people that are involved in in, in social justice, social change around this country. But after the tragic death of George Floyd in 2020, there were demonstrations in every state in our nation, which hadn't happened in, in a long time. I think it's happened before in history, but it had been a long time where everyone came together and said, you know what, this is wrong. We need to do something about it. A policeman should not be judge, jury, and executioner. So we saw that in this nation. And of course, it reverberated throughout the world because you had demonstrations on the European continent, you had demonstrations in Australia and New Zealand, on the African continent, in South America and Canada. So the entire world was impacted by what that, that one incident. And what I'm saying is all of these young people of varying ages came together and they said, look, we need to do something about this. The same kind of thing on a smaller scale, but at a significant level. And 2018 came together around the March for Our Lives when at Douglas Stoneman High School in Parkland, Florida, 16 or so, 15, I think, kids and one teacher were killed by a gunman. And young people came together to say, we need sensible gun legislation. And that was a huge moment where 800,000 people came to Washington, D.C. But these were led by high school kids. It was not college kids. Oftentimes we've seen activism with college kids, but young high school kids. Now, of course, if we go back and look at progress that was begun then and what happened now, because today we are, something has changed in our culture. And as opposed to looking at responsible gun legislation, it feels as if we have become a little bit irresponsible, in, in my personal opinion, not to be against you know, the Second Amendment, I think people have the right to, to own guns and, and, and all. But the fact of the matter is we need some sensible legislation. I, I don't believe that people should have assault weapons. I, I just that's just me personally. I, I think that's very problematic in our state, in Georgia and maybe other states as well. But certainly Georgia, they just passed legislation where you don't even, even have to have a permit to get uh, a gun and and you can carry your gun pretty much anywhere. And to me, that is, that's going backward. That's not looking forward. That goes back to the day of that. What, what we're doing is we're embracing our fears, not our faith, because our faith would dictate something else. Now, that is actually highlighted by the, the, not, the incidents of crime that are promoted. And we see it's not just promoted. It's real that we see everyday people getting killed. Someone's pulling out a gun. And so I'm saying that that makes other people have fear, and then they want to go out and get guns. So everybody has the gun, and it feels like almost the days of the old West. We have to go, we have to go up to a higher level as humankind if we're going to resolve these problems. We got to address mental illness because there's a lot of mental illness in our society. 
that we have been sleeping on and, and not paying attention, but it is real and it exists. And there are, if we bring uh, the community together, there are ways to begin to address and mitigate some of these problems. I just don't believe that the, the I, I just don't believe the solution is everybody get his gun or her gun. But I'm not against you having a gun if that's what you feel you need to do. I'm just saying, I don't know that the solution is let's just give people more guns and that's going to be the solution. That's going to be a, a, a scenario where we end up wiping ourselves out, I think. And that's not the right direction that I believe we need to be going in. Yeah. So as I hear you speaking about yet another topic, gun control, I'm reminded that your your work is is not limited to civil rights. In fact, earlier you actually, and I, th- I assume this was intentionally, you referred specifically civil and human rights. But your your issues go way beyond that. You've stood against wars, the death penalty, excessive police force, poverty, policies that suppress organized labor, policies that suppress voting rights. As you said earlier, the misuse of your father's name. The list is is long. Does Does this ever get overwhelming for you or do you just find so much purpose in it that that you know, the, the task in front of you just pushes you forward? I, I think the task in, in front of us just just pushes pushes me forward. I, I, w- I would be less than honest if I said that it does not sometimes feel overwhelming. It certainly does. But I also am able to find a renewing. Sometimes I have to move back and, and take a break. For example, if you watch the daily news, whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC or, or, or any of the other outlets, you're going to be angry every day. And you, you get so angry that you may even become, you, you, you just don't know what to do. So I think you have to take a break from, from the news sometimes, maybe a couple of days you need to meditate. You need to go out into nature if you can. You need to commune. I say with God, you need to pray. And some of us, you know, I, I used to fast. I have done that for a while. But I think all of those are, are, are methods that can be used to reinforce you. And when you get your foundation back, then you come back to the table and get back engaged in the fight, if you will. Because as you, you can't, there's no way you can fight 24-7 and not get burnt out. Human, it, we're human beings. And you're going to get burnout, but you have to take time from time to time to reflect and, and, and then strategically prepare for what is next. So, for example, there's a big issue just a couple of days ago, I guess it was Monday or Tuesday, when it came out that the Supreme Court is getting ready to, it feels like, strike down Roe v. Wade. And we've made the issue an issue of whether you're for abortions or against. and. I don't know a lot of people who are for abortions, but we are a society of of laws and rules and rights. And the question really should be, does someone have the right, a a woman in this case, to choose what she may or may not do with her body? And I think that's where we need to be discussing as opposed to whether or not you're for abortion. I don't, again, I don't, I, I don't know. But, I mean, there probably are people who are out there saying, yes, I'm for abortion. What I'm for is, is, is the right for people to have a choice. Not, and, and I don't think me as a man should be trying to regulate what a woman may, may do as it relates to her own body, particularly in cases of rape and incest and other kinds of things that are so damaging. I want and support all human life. But I also think that it's contradictory to talk about, you know, I am for life, and when a young person gets here in our society and is born in an impoverished condition and does not have the tools that he or she may need to matriculate and ends up in jail and does something wrong, then you want to kill them. That's for the death penalty. So it's, it's sort of there are a lot of inconsistencies that we have within our, our, our thoughts. But my, my higher point was, this issue today that will be this will permanently be put on the book soon is is very interesting because it it may it it could cause more people to engage in the political process and the projected outcome may be different than what is projected today 
it's just going to be interesting to see how these dynamics unfold. But I, I am a, I am one that believes in expansion, not reduction. And I think, you know, there are laws on our books that say something needs to be done about certain things in terms of crime. And some of those laws are, are, are needed. But I think that every time we try to reduce and, and suppress the rights, that's, that's bad. I mean, the reason the African-American community was able to get certain laws put on the books was because we expanded. We expanded to create the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. We expanded to create the Voting Rights Act. We expanded to create fair housing legislation. So for us to begin to subtract in terms of rights, I think is going in a, in a backward direction as opposed to a forward direction. How do we look forward, but how do we do it constructively, not destructively? I'm, I'm, uh, there's so much in that, in that answer. One of the things that I, I in, you've given me an opportunity to ask you a question that I was thinking about, which is you mentioned the power of prayer and you refer to it as a way to pull yourself away from what's going on in the world. And, and I agree with what you just said. I experience that kind of anger when I, when I watch the news these days. How important is religion to you? It is of tent, uh, critically important. That's where my foundation is. My foundation is my, is my faith, you know, and that's almost why I, I used to have a friend who was extraordinarily progressive. I, I say used, he's still, he's, he's gone on to, to live with God, but he, most people would say he was, he was kind of way out there. And I don't know if you, you may is that have Reverend, that is that Re- Reverend Osborne? No, no, that's uh, Dick Gregg. Okay. Uh, Dick Gregory was a great humanitarian and a uh, comedian and worked with my dad. But Dick used to say, you know, you, you can't have fear and God can't live in the same space. Now, I'm not, I don't know if I, that's totally true. <laughs> you can't believe God and then also have fear. But Dick used to say that as an I, ideal. Either you, you truly believe in your faith and, and God is going to protect you. Or, you know, you may, you know, dabble into your fears a little bit. So I'm saying that to say, from my perspective, everything I've gone through, it's my faith that has renewed and colored the position that I have. I'll give a couple of examples. 1968, as you know, my father was killed. I was 10 years old, as you said. When dad was killed, what you may not know is in 1969, my uncle, my father's brother, mysteriously drowned. In 1974, my father's mother, my grandmother, was gunned down in the church while playing the Lord's Prayer. So my dad and my grandmother were assassinated. And I could have embraced hatred and hostility, but I chose to embrace love and and forgiveness. My grandfather used to say, I refuse to allow any man to reduce me to hatred. The man that killed my lovely wife, nor the man that killed my son. I love everybody. I'm every man's brother. Now, I I saw that lived out in his life because he, he could have preached that as sometimes people do and yet lived a different way but he lived what he preached he he showed us as his grandchildren that example and of course my mom you know was first of all taught in the home with mom and dad i mean dad was talking nonviolence living nonviolence and it would have been unfortunate if we had embraced hatred people would have understood i think i think people have the capacity to understand I, you know when you see you can empathize when people are going through things, you know, here's a kid, you, you lost your father and you're bitter. Okay. I understand that. I hope that you can ultimately come around to a different position, but I'm saying that to say that all of that was a part of my faith. So that when I get up today to speak to children or to organizations and groups or wherever I am, I always hope that I'm, I'm speaking in, in a positive tone, not in a negative and hostile tone, because I really believe that that doesn't serve us well. 
I mean, you can certainly growl up people. You can get their attention. You can get us people to follow you around that. But I believe the ultimate and highest level is by using and embracing love. And that's that's what my faith teaches me. And it's 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 it's, it's a grounding within our life. Our, I say our because my my wife, daughter, and you know are grounded and immersed in our, in our faith. And and every decision that we make, we try to make it by what our faith teaches us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I I can hear it in the way you speak and in your words, and I find it very inspirational. You just mentioned children, and I'd like to address yours, if you don't mind. You have a daughter, Yolanda Renee King, and as you as you mentioned, uh, you had a sister who passed away at a relatively young age, and you, you named your daughter for her. And I read that she is the first and only grandchild of Dr. King and Coretta Scott King. Is that true? That That is correct. Uh, my sister, Bernice, my younger sister, is not married, and my brother, Dexter, recently and the last couple of years got married and he and his wife do not have any children. So okay. Yolanda Renee is the, is the only grandchild. So I was, I was very curious and I watched the CNN video of you and Yolanda from a few years ago. I think it was, it was from three years ago talking about how we can best preserve and honor your father's work and sacrifices. And I, I saw a clip of her speaking at the March for Our Lives demonstration in Washington, D.C. in 2018, when I guess she was only nine years old. And yeah. I'm going to tell you, she seemed poised beyond her years. Now, maybe she was well coached. Maybe it just helps to have you as her father. But is she going to carry on the family's civil rights legacy? Do you talk to her about that? Does she have a, you know, does, does she see a calling for that? Well, she is an activist in her own right, and she always has had uh, a heart for for community. When she was, I believe, two or three years old, when we would when we were taking her driving around Atlanta, going various places, she always was concerned about the homeless population. And she said, "You know, one day she was probably three or four th- at this time. By this time, I'm going to." buy a large mansion and I'm going to have it designed so that all of these people who live on the streets can have somewhere to live. And so that was at three or four. In 2016, we went, we were invited to the White House the last year of President Obama's term. We had been there many times, but for some reason, we had never been into the in the Oval Office to see the bust of my father and her grandfather. Mm. And so in February of 2016, we were invited and we said to Yolanda, we didn't give her any, you know, preparation other than well, you're going to see the president today. And she and this would this probably was her maybe fourth or fifth time in his presence. And we said, you've got to come up with a question to ask the president. And we didn't give her any additional guidelines. So her question was, Mr. President, what are you going to do about the gun, these guns and safety? And initially, you know, he started speaking to her and the answer did not suit her. So she continued to look at him until eventually he had to really think about it and give her an answer that in her mind made sense. Now, Love that it. was her. Not it didn't come from us. When we got to barge for our lives in 218, she did not know she was going to speak that day and until two hours before. We woke up at maybe 6:30 or 7 on that, I believe it was a Saturday uh, morning, and we got a call. We had spoken to some of the organizers because I had to- I, I had taught her a chant that she wanted to share with the audience. But she, what she, what ended up happening was when we found out she was going to speak, we were trying to say, well, oh gosh, we're scrambling. We got to come up with something for you to say. She said, no, no, I know what I'm going to say. And of course, she said in her own way, my grandfather had a dream. I'm Yolanda Renee King and Marjorie the King and Coretta King's granddaughter. And I have a dream. And she named what his dream was about the four little children being judged by the color of their skin, not the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And then she went on to say, 
I have the dream also. My dream is enough is enough. And we must have a gun-free world. And then she did the chant that I taught her that is about motivating young people. She memorized that. And it was so profound. We didn't know for sure what she was going to say. We just knew she was going to say the chant because she would not allow us to help her prepare. So at nine years old, she prepared her own remarks. And she's spoken several times since then, of course. We had a, a march for the anniversary of the March in Washington in 2819. And I'm sorry, 2020. And she spoke there. And then we had an anniversary march in 2021. And she spoke there. And so, you know, each time she came with information about what her generation has a responsibility to do. And it, as parents, you know, we, we cannot be more proud, Andre and I, I cannot be more proud of who she is. But it's not because we are pushing her. This is something in her head and in her heart, mostly in her heart. And I believe that if she keeps that in her heart, yes, the answer to your question is she will continue in this tradition. Well, I hope so. She was very inspirational. I did watch that clip and uh, it was very inspirational. She had a lot of great energy about her. So I'm, I'm going to now, we're, we're running out of time. And so I'm going to move into our extraordinary teaching segment. And these are a couple of questions I'm going to ask you that I ask all of my guests. And, uh, you know, just a quick answer, whatever comes to your mind. The first question is, what's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? Well, my, so far, my most satisfying accomplishment has got to be what we have sowed into our daughter. That to me is the greatest thing that can happen and, and that she has, we are constantly reinforcing and undergirding her, not pushing her again, but that's my most, I think the most proud sure. thing that exists. Now, for me personally, in terms of accomplishments, I would have to say I was an elected official back in the late 80s, um, a county commissioner here in, in Georgia, and we created a number of different programs that some of them are still being utilized today. And, and so that that was a, a, a proud moment of mine. I, I have so many proud moments. We were involved in protesting around South Africa. And when South Africa became liberated and Nelson Mandela was elected the first president, uh, I had the opportunity to be in South Africa two weeks before the actual election. So I was there organizing and encouraging South Africans and to be there then and then to see that inauguration, which was so powerful. The first time that a black African had become the president of a country that had been a, a apartheid and, and racist system. To see that transformation was yeah, so powerful. I can imagine. So, I, I mean, I could go on and on. There's there's so many. I, I know you said you wanted just one answer. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I can choose one more question, uh, and I'm going to ask you this. What do you hope your legacy will be? Well, I, I hope that my legacy will be that I was helpful in moving to the next level. And what I mean by that is we are working on the eradication of racism, poverty, and violence. And I don't, you know, we I may not see that within my life. But if I can extend the trajectory so that freedom and justice and equality does truly become real for all humankind, then I I think my challenge is, as I said, to move the bar saw to a higher level. We have, we've got a long, unfortunately, long way to go. But each and every day that I wake up, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to wake up and and be engaged. I want to help create a positive society because I think we're negatively charged. It's a huge, huge mission. And I'm, I'm going to keep working on this and, and, and mm -hmm. because I, I, I know for sure we are far better than the behavior we're exhibiting. And so I want to create the climate for us to become the best society that we can. Well, I think you've already made a uh, made a giant progress in that regard. But as you say, there is much more to be done. And indeed, I think it's appropriate to end our conversation, which I really wish could go on longer because I have so many more questions I'd love to ask you. 
with something that you said. You said, the task is not done. The journey is not complete. We can and we must do more. And that is the extraordinary Martin Luther King III. Thank you, Martin. Any final words? The final thing I guess I could say is, look, all of us can, all of us can be engaged in some way. As a kid, my mom took me to our undergraduate institution, Antioch College. And on that college is a statue of the educator Horace Mann. The inscription under that statue says, be ashamed to die. Reads, be ashamed, be, reads, be ashamed to die until you want a victory for humanity. And you may say, well, how can I do that? Well, you see, you know, we can win victories in our neighborhood. We can win victories in our schools. We can win victories in our cities, in our state. Some of us may win victories in our nation, and some may win victories in our world. But all those words mean are be ashamed to die until you have done a little something to make the world a little better than it was when you arrived. And that's a challenge for all. I love that. I'll use that in the future. That's I find that that equally inspirational. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's you can join me in following Martin on Twitter at officialmlk3. And be sure to check out his book, My Daddy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.